would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. What happens when a successful craft beer blogger, author, and educator decides to dip her toe in the business side of craft beer? Does the SBA switch horses midstream? Does she get dizzy navigating the logistics of Atlanta city, county, and local government permitting processes? Does a worldwide pandemic and a heartless landlord throw rocks at her like a sweaty bully on a playground? Jen Price is one of those people that makes this industry fun. She cares. She inspires. She reminds us not to take the beer more seriously than the fellowship around it. She's brought countless people into this industry and then formed bonds of community between them. She embodies what craft beer originally claimed to be. But when Jen decided to follow her dreams and open a brick-and-mortar taproom bottle shop, craft beer forgot to show her the same love she spent showing it. She struggled, she failed, and she learned. Learned what she wanted to do next and is throwing all her considerable energy behind it. So throw on your headphones and take a listen to the story of Jen Price and the Atlanta Beer Boutique. Jen, I want to thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a heart-shaped fuck wrapped in a bacon bow about helping all of our guests be better in their careers. You, <laughs> you are what I'd consider to be a craft beer evangelist. As ever cool and unique activity you've done seems to follow that path. I know you started a blog, you wrote a book, uh, you got close to opening a bottle shop, and there were some cool pivots and some you know, struggles and su- success stories throughout the way that I'm looking forward to getting into. But honestly, I think in the beginning, let's, let's just have the audience get to know you. Like, who, who were you before you were this craft beer maven? <laughs> Man, it, you know what? It's kind of who I still am. So um, before um, I got really deep into craft beer, though, I was just, you know, a girl out here enjoying life, living life, trying new things. Um, I've honestly, I'd say I've, I've loved craft beer for the majority of my life now. Um, I got into it way back in college in the 90s, dating myself, but I uh, <laughs> I got into craft beer back then and, you know, just was a, a an, an enjoyer of it, a fan of it, and just really, I just, I was enamored of the craft that um, went into the art of creating a beer. But before I got to, you know, this point of trying to host events and trying to open a shop and writing um, a book, you know, I'm a, I'm a city, I'm a city planner. I'm a project manager. I work in the transportation planning industry here in Atlanta and um, I still do. I maintain my job as I've been going through my beer journey, but you know, I'm a, I'm a Southerner. I'm from, from Atlanta, grew up in Decatur, which is on the East side of Atlanta. If you're not from here, but Atlanta is where I call home. And where my family is, where all of my, my, most of my friends are. And it's just, it's a lovely place, but that's who I am. I'm a enjoyer of, of many things, but I've always been the kind of person that's done 
stuff a little bit differently. And I've always, you know, kind of gone off the beaten path. I think craft beer for people of color is something that's a little bit different. It's kind of off the beaten path. And so that's just who I am. It's, it's who I've always been. And I've always been just, you know, right. always looking for something new and creative and interesting to be a part of. And just so happens I found my way to craft beer. Obviously, your, your career spans <laughs> a lot of creativity. And that's definitely something that defines what you do and how you work. Uh, how did that manifest early on? Like when you were a kid, were you an artist, a writer, sculptor? What, what did, how did that creativity nope. look? Absolutely not. As I've always been very analytical. I have degrees in math and civil engineering and city planning. So I'm a very, always been a very sort of technical person, but I, I think I've also always had a creative streak in me, but it just wasn't really cultivated. I think I don't know if your parents were like this or your community was like this, but when you're good in one thing as a kid, like that's your thing. And I was always really good in math and science. And so I was Jen, the girl who's good in math and science in our family. That's just, that was my thing. That was my lane academics and not really, you know, creatively encouraged. Um, I wasn't discouraged, but it just, you know, my brother was an artist, a visual artist. So he was obviously the artist in the family. And so, you know, it just wasn't really the thing that was assigned to me. But I started, you know, just having, I think, more uh, leeway to um, embark upon creative pursuits, probably in college or even grad school or later. Um, It's something I developed kind of later in life. I think, though, as a city planner in my profession, a lot of that is sort of vision based and design based and future looking forward looking. So you do have to have sort of, I think, a creative or imaginative spirit to do that. So maybe it was cultivated also in school. But um, yeah, I was always the science geek, math geek, sick. Wasn't ever really pushed to do artistic and creative stuff. Well, I would have, when I was younger, I would have never said that there was uh, art and beauty in math. But as I've gotten older, uh, th- that is the case to an extent. There, there is some, so you can't discount it completely. On to like, how you got started. You've been quoted many times as saying that your your journey to beer began with you know, Miller High Life that your dad gave you. That uh, that was really what brought you into the beer world and gave you an appreciation for fizzy yellow water. But how did that translate to craft beer? Like, What, what was that seminal craft beer that changed that you were like, wow, there's a whole world here as opposed to just, you know, th- this one style of beer. Yeah, it was a it was a big gap between that first beer that I had <laughs> with my dad. I was five, yeah. if I can recall. <laughs> I was a kid. Well, we sound and to be a mom, similar age. Um, there weren't that many options back then either. So, But you know what? My dad used to travel for work every now and then. And in the 80s, he went to Colorado. This is my mother's. I'm telling the story through my mom, who also loved beer. He shipped home cases of Coors, <laughs> the banquet beer, because it was new. It was craft back then-ish, yeah. craft-ish. And my mother, that is her favorite beer to this day. She will still have a tall banquet beer. I take her the nicest stuff, right? No no, no shade to, to the banquet beer. But I take my mom really nice things. and But she will always have a four-pack of, of Coors in the fridge. Yeah, so from five to about... I'd say 25, I was, you know, well, you know, willy nilly doing whatever, but I got to ironically do an internship in Colorado, um, in Boulder, Colorado. And that's where I was introduced to Sierra Nevada Pale Ale from some of my fellow interns. I was in school in Tallahassee at the time. 
drinking whatever. You know, we had this bar in Tallahassee that would give out nickel beers. Right. So you can imagine what that was. It was probably something that, you know, Bush light or something. I don't know, Natty light or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whatever you can. And they were in those little um, mouthwash cups and they would put them on a tray and just fill the tray with those cups and fill the cups with that nickel beer. So that's what I was drinking. And then but I've, it didn't bother me as much as I think some people who just were not beer lovers because I just always have loved the taste of beer. When I got to Colorado and was in this internship with these amazing people from all over um, the world, really, someone brought Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And I'd never tasted anything like that before. I never had. And Sierra Nevada is a, I mean, back then, this is a 90, like 92, 93, I don't know. They, they still are craft, but they were very small then. And I had never had beer that was hoppy or that had that much character or that many layers to it. That was the first craft beer I had. That same summer, we found a nano brewery in downtown Boulder, Colorado on Pearl Street that does not exist anymore. It was called Oasis Brewing. And that was my first time going into a brewery and like meeting the brewer, him being there, you know, very accessible and talking to people. And I never, I never knew that it was that much behind creating beer. And that's when I really started to appreciate the art behind it. So yeah, dating back to 93 was my first, my first taste of, of the good stuff. That's cool. So how long between that and the blog blog Mm. was, you started blogging like 2013? Another long time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was around then. So probably another I don't know, 15 or so years. So you're just amateur fan for 15 I, years and decided to go pro and write about it? Yeah, I guess so. So I was, um, you know, when I left college, I left Tallahassee and I moved to Charlotte and lived there for a little bit and moved to Philadelphia for, for a few years. I think in Philly, that was probably like 06. I really started back getting into beer, just kind of finding um, good stuff there in the city. And when I moved back home in about 06, 07, I reconnected with some old friends. And ended up moving across the street from, I live in a pub district. And, um, of course you do. <laughs> that is, that's really when I got back into, yeah, I just got back into beer because of proximity. Like there was a bar across the street that opened in like 07, 08 called the Midway Pub. They just served like beers that I'd never had before. And I just started consuming. It was just like so easy. The access was incredible. I can walk home. I can walk there. Yeah, so it was another, I'd say, 15 or so years before I started really digging back into beer. I started buying books about it, started reading about it, started homebrewing with my, my best friend's brother and a few other people and just kind of understanding what it meant to make beer and all that it took to make beer. Our first beers were horrible. They were so bad. Um, <laughs> Most people so are. bad. We were using like lager yeast to make ale. Yeah, I didn't know what we were doing. But it was so fun to just explore and, and just learn as much as I could about it. And then, yeah, fast forward to a few more years, I'd say about 2012, 2013 is when I started blogging about it and started really wanting to share my knowledge with other people. It was about that time that a, a friend of mine asked me to come and do a like a a tasting at her house for a party. I mean, when people come to my condo to come to my house, I always just force them to drink beer. I do. I was doing tastings all the time because I force stuff on people when they come and hang out with me. And then she was like, you know what, you should really like do this, you know, for, you know, a a class. Like, would you offer, would you consider doing this for some friends I want to have over at my house? And I was like, absolutely. So we did a beer and food pairing. She loves to cook. And it was, 
it was my first time doing anything like that. And this was probably 2014. And that really sparked my interest in educating other people about it on a more formal level, other than just having people at my house and pouring beers for them. Yeah, doing yeah. something but official. That, so that's, yeah, yeah, that's when I started doing something official. I, I think I hosted my first class was a like a four-course beer and food pairing. Then I just started doing events like monthly. I was just so surprised that there were other people that were as interested in this as I was. They weren't all beer geeks. This is what was really interesting to me and very surprising to me is that I thought that once I started hosting events, the people who would come would be people like me who knew a lot or knew fairly, you know, a fair amount about beer, who studied it and who were geeky about it. But most of the folks who came were people who didn't know a lot and wanted to know more. And there were a lot of women who came. And that just, I I was over the moon excited about that. That's when I started blogging. People would ask me questions in my classes and my workshops and just want to know more information. So I started blogging just to share information and to make it available outside of the class to more people. I was like, this is really, people are really interested. Like, this is really cool. So that's when I started blogging a lot, just sharing more with with, uh, folks outside of my immediate circle about craft. Was there kind of a mission statement with the blog? Did you have a focus of topics that you tried to do or was it just sort of whatever came up in those classes? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, it is, it was, so the blog ended up being a direct sort of download from the classes. So whatever I covered in the classes, I would blog about or write about. And then I found that um, I started structuring my classes around topic. The first few classes were really just about like what foods go good with what beer and what beer is. But then I started just breaking it down a little more because I I figured I found that I had people in my class who just some people didn't even know the basics about beer and then other folks knew a little bit more. So I would try to structure my classes to have more of a journey so that we could talk about like beer 101 stuff. Like what are the four ingredients? How is beer made? Why do ingredients in beer you know, why does beer pair well with food? Well, it's because of the ingredients in beer and kind of how those similarities um, come together. And I just started structuring the classes more, which made the blog a little more structured. And then the blog actually became such good information that I was like, oh, this stuff would be great for a book. Two of my friends, two of my guy friends came up to me and were like, you know what, you should really write a book. One of the guy friends was writing a book at the same time. And he was like, it's not as hard as you think. You should really (laughs) just, just go home and just outline what the topics may be. He was like, you know, give yourself, you know, parameters, you know, maybe it's like, you know, a guidebook. And I was like, okay, you know, I will consider it. And after having lunch with him that day, I went home and I outlined what a book could be about. And I came up with the seven rules for the craft beer novice for my book, The Chick's Guide to Beer. I outlined it and put that outline. It was in my notes. And I think that it sat for about nine to 10 months until I saw him again. And he was like, yo, what's up with that book? <laughs> I was like, oh, the book. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I forgot. I'm writing a book. So I resurrected the, the um, outline and started writing it. But a lot of the content came from my blog post. So I had a lot of the content already created or at least a framework for it. Of course, there was more writing that went into the book. The book is a guide. It's The Chick's Guide to Beers, Seven Simple Rules for the Craft Beer Novice. And it really is a guidebook um, for people who want to know more about, you know, the basics and the fundamentals of beer. But the having the blog and having written that stuff up made it really easy to translate into a book. Mm-hmm. I wanted the book to be 
a little more conversational. I have lots of beer books and they range, you know, they vary. As, as you know, some of them are super thick, like the Oxford Companion and some are, you know, quick reads or some are journal style. And I took what I liked from a lot of the other books that I was reading at the time, which were like the journal pages. I was like, oh, that would be nice to have in a book for someone. If it's a guidebook, I want you to be able to use the book. I want you to be able to take the book. It should be able to fit in, you know, your bag or easily carry in your hand. And it should have, you know, places for you to write notes about the books that you're, about the beers that you're experiencing. So I wanted it to be a useful book and to be, you know, just easy and, and not so dense and difficult. So it's a real simple read. You can read it in a day. But I hope that it's something that people can go back to and refer back to and kind of use as a as a guide or like a little you know, little encyclopedia kind of. Do yeah. people still read encyclopedias? I'm sure not. <laughs> if so, it's on the Internet, which no, sounds really I'm, boring. Yeah, it's just me. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember? You may not be old enough to remember encyclopedia sets, but do you remember those? No, we used to get them. Um... I don't remember where we used to get one. Maybe it was a grocery store or something like that where you could get like a different volume every week for a while. And You could. Yeah. It was, we, we had them as children and I actually read them, just sat down and read them like books, like a boring nerd. But Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I did too. So can you tell us a couple of what those rules are out of curiosity? Yeah. One of the rules is to know how it's made, right? So that's, I think that yeah. I don't even have the book in front of me, but the first chapter is just understanding the ingredients in beer, uh, the process for making it, and how it gets from those four simple ingredients to a bottle on a shelf or a can on a shelf. Another one of the, the rules is, gosh, I'm not quoting these word for word. I apologize. <laughs> well, I it was should, a while uh, back when you read it. I should. And it's like right over there. Is to uh, know, know your glassware, right? I'm a big fan of pairing beers with the appropriate glassware and... You know, it may not matter so much to a lot of people, but first of all, I just I'm in awe of the fact that there are certain glasses that can highlight certain elements of beer, and I'd love to appreciate that. So, you know, I I I love having my pilsner and a flute. I love my Belgian to be in the tulip. I just I think it adds to the experience. And that chapter is not only about the appropriate glasses, but also glassware maintenance and how to take good care of your glassware. Another rule is pairing, you know, how to pair beer with food properly. And that's probably my favorite. And one of my favorite things to do is to pair beer with food, but it's about sort of finding um, foods that harmonize with the flavors in beer. Some of the pairing rules are to find two things that are almost opposites and pair them together. And it goes through one of the the cool things in that chapter is um, a chart that tells you, you know, some of the different styles of beer um, and some of the different foods that you can pair with them. So it's sort of a quick little reference guide, a reference table in the book. Um, and then there's also a glossary, like know the, know the vocabulary that I think is really important. And it's some really basic vocabulary in there. But when I first started beer, um, you know, learning about beer, there were some, you know, people would talk about things like dry hopping or, you know, other um, processes or terms in the, in the craft beer community that I think are important to know. I think that vocabulary is probably one of the most important things to, to kind of get down if you're going to dive into beer, because one of the things that keeps 
me away from learning other things. But say wine, for example, I'm, you know, I'm learning more about wine because I have a couple of friends who are just wine geeks and the same with I'm a beer geek, but I don't always know the vocabulary to explain what I'm tasting or to even talk about it. And it makes me feel a little shy sometimes, a little less courageous or, you know, it, it just, you know, I, I just think knowing the proper words and the proper vocabulary can really help boost um, a novice's confidence about about being in craft beer because sometimes it can be a little intimidating you know like people yeah. are talking about aromas and the nose and you're talking about different flavor, uh, aspects of hops and and some of the words are just like huh what are you talking about so i think knowing your vocabulary is really important yeah it but just helps you understand probably three other rules that i didn't <laughs> yeah it does it helps you understand it helps you i think uh, because a lot of beer is about flavor and what you're tasting and your experience right there in that moment. And then connecting that with, with aspects of the brewing process that if you're not a brewer, you may not know, but if you read them, you know, you can become a little more familiar, but just making those connections, I think is so important. So key if you're really trying to, to learn more about craft beer and it just kind of helps bridge, you know, those gaps, I think between being a beginner and someone who may be a little more experienced, a little more seasoned. Just kind of make those interactions a little easier. Yeah. Well, I think craft beer still got 78% of the market to tackle, so we, we could use some more newbies in there. I know. <laughs> um, but so where is the book available? I think it's, is it exclusively Amazon? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Okay. So people can go to Amazon and get it. Do you have any intentions of writing another book? I do. I've been toying with the idea of updating this one and also doing like a beer cocktail book. Hmm. I've been thinking of doing. I love beer cocktails. I have a, a really good friend of mine who she's a cocktail connoisseur and she and I often make beer cocktails together and just kind of come up with new recipes or riffs off of existing cocktail recipes that we can incorporate beer into. So I really love it. It's a lot of fun. And so I was thinking of doing like a, a recipe book, a beer cocktail recipe book That's sometime cool. soon. That's I'm definitely one totally, of those ideas. Totally sure, though. Definitely one of those ideas that you sort of like. Well, there is one, but I'm I've never seen one, so there probably isn't. So that's a great idea. I don't know if there is. I have no idea. And I, then I'm like, well, people do people want that? Like, is this what people want? But I think it will be fun to put together, regardless whether or not it, you know, it does well. <laughs> I think it'd just be yeah. fun to, well, to be a fun one to write. To an extent, I think we're sort of past that, where there's what almost nine billion people on the planet somebody's going to want it. <laughs> so I think you'll be Somebody's right. going to want it. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So we've covered kind of like how you got started, who you are, what you do in the craft beer industry. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the bottle shop, which um, I'm very, very, very curious to get into. So let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. Remember when you had to buy film for your camera, take pictures you couldn't see or edit, and then pay someone to take two weeks to develop them into pictures? Well, there wasn't a better way then but there is a better way now. Are you literally still measuring final gravity with a hydrometer like some furry caveman? Dude, you need to get AccuBrew. You'll find real-time feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. And the thing will alert you anywhere in the world when any of them are out of your spec. I'm tired of telling you to make better beer, so go install AccuBrew and make me shut up. Seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and even I will thank you. So welcome back. Again, I, I appreciate the information about the book. Um, hopefully some people will go pick it up and learn. 
everything they need to know about yeah. the beer novice. So what I would like to get into now is the the bottle shop, the, the idea you had there and sort mm-hmm. of the inspiration. So let's let's talk about the Atlanta Beer Boutique store. What was the inspiration? You've, you've got a blog, you've got a book, you're doing classes. Now you need a brick and mortar? Well, yeah. So the classes kind of opened my eyes to what could be next in the craft beer space for me. The classes, you know, I would host them at a, I had a friend who had a, a tea shop. She still has a tea shop. It's called Just Add Honey here in Atlanta. She would close at like five so I could host, host my classes there. Um, she let me use her space um, in the evenings and on weekends when she was closed. But the classes really showed me two things. One was that people were very interested in coming to a space and having these sort of experiential moments with beer and with other people to talk about beer, to learn more about it. And then after every class, there would be at least half of the people who would ask me, where can I buy this beer? You know, can I buy those beers that you still have left over? They'd want to buy beers off of me. (laughs) They would just be very interested in making the connection, you know, after that class to actually have the product. So I'd always tried to figure out once I realized that I really liked craft beer and I really liked the industry and I really liked the community that was behind it, I was still just trying to figure out, you know, where my space or my place could be in this beer space. And, you know, the class just encouraged me to try to find an actual physical location where I could host my classes. My classes could have a home. I could sell craft beer to people. Um, and then also create like this space where people could connect over beer. So it doesn't have to necessarily be in a class, but that you could come to have a beer, sit down, you know, almost like a cafe feel for people to just be a part of this community. Because one thing that I was really noticing in Atlanta was that, you know, more people were becoming interested in craft beer, more people were wanting to learn about it. I saw the numbers growing of breweries that were opening. It it, it just has been, you know, here in Atlanta, we may be a little, I think, behind the eight ball uh, compared to some other bigger cities as far as, you know, beer or breweries per capita, but we're growing. And I just saw all that energy and all that, you know, positivity around it. And what I really started seeing once that was growing, once the breweries were going, was that, like I said, the community of people who are into beer was just, I don't know, it just felt really good. And I wanted to find a, a way to capture that energy and to capture that interest and to be, you know, a, a place where people could come to that truly focused on craft beer and nothing but craft beer and sort of a brick and mortar retail kind of a setup. So that was sort of the impetus for the shop. How is that different than what existed? So obviously you had bottle shops, but and I think based on what I read that you had a very unique idea for it, but I'm just curious from your perspective, what was unique about your idea and how was it going to be different than just uh, what was existing in Atlanta at the time? Yeah, so we do have bottle shops. We have great bottle shops here mm-hmm. that sell beer and wine and spirits and a lot of other things. And even like our, our grocery stores actually have really good beer selections um, if you're in the city, I know for sure. <laughs> um, but I think the thing that was going to set us apart would be sort of the the interaction and the more sort of tailored and concierge kind of approach to connecting people with beer. I really wanted to take a lot of the elements of the book and translate that into a shopping experience for people. So I wanted people who were brand new at beer to be able to walk in and have, you know, someone attentively take them through 
the the store and to find the beers that fit them. One of the things that we were offering were these craft beer fittings. And that's when you uh, a novice or a newbie would come in and sit with an expert or sit with someone from our staff and uh, just go through sort of a like a, a panel um, like like we do in, in you know some breweries do a tasting panel or a flavor panel and just figure out the things that they liked the things they didn't like and kind of pair them with their their perfect beer and to find sort of a couple of opportunities a couple of beers for them to connect with and to just create sort of a personal shopping experience for people. When I hear boutique, I think of, you know, people think of different things when they hear that word. But, um, you know, you think of like a curated, you think of maybe something a little more intimate, a little more thoughtful. You think of um, an elevated experience. Um, you may think of a sort of a more unique and personalized approach to whatever the product is. And in this case, it would be beer. And so I think it would, you know, would set us aside or was going to set us apart mostly from those bigger box shops, like a grocery store or even a, a really well-stocked liquor store would be that one-on-one kind of opportunity to not just learn more about beer, but to educate them in those moments as well. Yeah, which is an important part that even the guys that are growing dramatically now, that does not seem to be what they're bringing to the table. So it, it's still missing, I think, in most markets, just that yeah, personal touch yeah. on the beer side. Who did the design? Of the space? Mm-hmm. Um, me. Me and I spoke with a friend who's an interior designer who um, has done, she's never done beer spaces before, but she was very instrumental in kind of bringing the elements that I wanted into furniture <laughs> and into, yeah. into shelving, um, into the look of the place. And then I, I, the contractors I had, Storytime Construction, they do a lot of beer-based businesses here in Atlanta. Definitely took a lot of cues from, from them, from um, Anthony and his wife, Paula, who just kind of sat down with me and from their experience told me the things that you know, that they saw work in previous spaces. My space was really, really cozy. It was not big. It was small. But that was the, the feel I wanted, just sort of a, you know, intimate cafe kind of experience. It was only 1,700 square feet, 1,793 to be exact. <laughs> um, and so it was, you know, we had to do some some fixing up and some, uh, some, some thinking to make a retail space and sort of a seating area work in this very cozy footprint. I taken so many notes. I have, I'm a note taker, so I have lots of journals, but I've taken so many notes of all of the the, the breweries I've gone to and the, the retail spaces I've gone to and the tea shops and wine shops that I've gone to. And just, I had in my head kind of the vision for how I wanted this, this space to look and feel. And it was going to feel more like a cafe and a wine shop than a, than a beer space or than, than what we would come to think of beer space. <laughs> My wife would, would normally feel like. My wife would have loved it. It was one of the arguments, I don't know if I'd say an argument, but I guess disagreements that we had throughout the early days, especially that our space was not remotely attractive to women. It was, it wasn't soft. It didn't yeah. have the right color scheme. And she, she is quoted many times as saying, there's, yeah. there's no fucking way I'd come here with you on a Saturday. I'm like, well, 
Come on, people are coming, whatever. <laughs> That's the thing. But your place is not. I, I, I think the pictures, the color, the, the just the concept and the feel of it was very inviting to that demographic. And I have to assume you set about to do that on purpose. 100%. I agree with your wife. There is <laughs> the only reason why I go to a warehouse to drink beer is because there's beer there. And it's not a place that I would want to, you know, hang out at for a long period of time. There's no, I mean, just no thought put into a lot of, a lot of breweries. I think a lot of them now are, especially, I, mean, I don't know if where you are, they are, but I think a lot of the newer spaces have, are being a lot more thoughtful in how they create a space that they want people to truly interact with. And this is, you know, just the, I think the pathway that beer has taken is that, you know, for a very long time, it was just about, you know, manufacturing and creating a product and, oh, where we create our product, we can also serve you. But I think now, I think it has, it has just totally, you know, changed its course in that people are creating spaces that are a lot more thoughtful and meaningful and that a lot of other people can experience and can be comfortable in. And I think that was what, you know, was really important for me was to know I wanted a space where people would come and hang out and like want to be there and want to be there for long periods of time. And, and that was also functional and that would have enough space for for cool beer, for coolers, and for shelving, and would still have the space for the cafe that it could be turned into a classroom. It was just, um, I think, a good marriage of function and, and form in the space, even with it being as, as small and cozy as it was. Well, do you think, and we'll fast forwarding a little bit, but uh, had you gotten open all the way, do you think that you would have had different beer selections because of that focus, or would that have made much of a difference as far as what you stocked and what you sold? I don't know. You know, I talked with another friend who he doesn't own the shop, but he's a buyer for a local market here in Atlanta. And his recommendation was that I just, you know, initially just pay it, you know, pay attention to what people want to be responsive to the customer's needs and to really just kind of take notes really on what's moving fast, what's not moving. I know a big part of my initial buy would have been from as local as possible. So from distributors, uh, you know, my, my first focus was focusing on Atlanta and Georgia and making sure I had local beers in the space. That was going to be about 75% of my, of my inventory really is local. So Georgia and local meaning like Georgia, Alabama, you know, Florida, but a lot of Atlanta and a lot of Georgia beer. So that was going to drive a lot of the inventory. It is. It's quite a few and and very good ones. Very good ones. I'm just so proud of Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, you know, Georgia in general with how, how not just how fast we're growing in craft beer, but the quality of the beer that's being, being created here. And I just really wanted to highlight that. Really wanted to make sure that I gave a spotlight to the local people, man. I, I love this city. City's been great to me. And I just, you know, that's just, it was a really important part of what I was going to offer in the space. So it'd be mostly local stuff, mostly local stuff. And then responsive to what, what people wanted. So it sounds like you still are, but uh, let's get back to building this thing. So you decided in the beginning to do a Kickstarter back in like 2018? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I was at that time, maybe actually the year before that, I was a part of this accelerator program through Emory University. Um, they have a small business incubator arm in their business school. And I was a part of one of their cohorts. 
the year prior. And one of the speakers in the class was a local gentleman who owns a, a sort of a tap room, a tap room and, and tea shop, tap room and coffee shop, one or the other. He was in a very similar position that I was in, in that, you know, like I didn't really have a huge 401k. Um, I have a condo, a little bit of equity there. I don't have, you know, didn't have like a big corporate background with a lot of money. I just I didn't have family with a lot of money. I did I didn't know where I was going to get capital from to back a loan. And so you know my my goal was you know I'd gone through my budgets. I detailed how much I was going to need to build out my space. I'd been talking with a bank to understand kind of like lending and how much I would need to bring to the table to secure a loan. And they gave me what that number was and. I, I, I was like, this is, I have no idea how I'm going to get that money from. <laughs> I just, I don't have it. My mama doesn't have it. Dad doesn't have it. Like, where am I going to go? And I remembered that, that one session that we had with that gentleman who told us about his Kickstarter experience. And I was like, you know what? I should just try that. I should try it. You know, I knew about crowdfunding. I participated in a few crowdfunding campaigns. But you know what? Let's do it. And let's set the bar. Let's set the bar high. Let's see what happens. So I, my goal was $25,000. Kickstarter, as you know, it gives you 30 days. Well, you get to make up your, um, think you could back then. It was so long ago. You couldn't, you could figure out what your time frame would be. But I've done a lot of research on, uh, what the ideal time frame is for a campaign. I've done research on when the best day, best month is to launch a campaign, best mm-hmm. day of the week to launch a campaign. I did all the research and 30 days is a sweet spot. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to, See what happens. So I set the goal of 25000 for 30 days, came up with some perks, some awards for people at different levels, and launched the campaign and raised, it ended up being like 30000 that I raised in a, in a month. And it blew my mind, blew my mind. Um, uh, Kickstarter was a was a risk because if you, it's an all or nothing kind of thing, right? So if you don't raise what you set out as your goal in the time frame then you don't get anything. And hmm. so there was definitely a sense of urgency behind it. There were other platforms that I could have chosen, but I just chose Kickstarter because I don't know, I just felt felt like it would be fun and interesting to see what happened. So yeah, that was the only way that I could have had enough capital to go to a bank and say, okay, you know, I have this, you know, they were demanding, I think, like 10 or 20% down on the loan. It was 20%, actually. So I, I came in right where I needed to <laughs> for the loan and for, you know, for the capital that I had on my own. But it, it, that Kickstarter campaign really was a gem for me because it was the only way I was able to just to launch things and to really, you know, I've been talking about this brick and mortar and talking about the beer boutique and doing this for years. I just, I saw no other way to make it actually happen than with the Kickstarter campaign. I'm so thankful for the people who donated. I set up a really good team. I, I, I set up a really good team of volunteers to help push information out. I had a team of like ambassadors really who helped promote on a very regular basis weekly for four weeks. And I couldn't have done it without, without that structure, without those people kind of backing me and setting, setting me up for success really it was it was awesome it showed me a lot about craft beer too about like the community and how people will believe in you and they don't even know you <laughs> I, I there's a very probably a good half of the people who donated to my campaign who I didn't know you know people who I never met people who maybe weren't even in Atlanta and who just I don't know believed in me enough 
helped build the boutique. That was a campaign called the name of the campaign, Build the Boutique. It was awesome. It was a great experience. I would I would recommend it to anyone. I know there's other ways now to raise money, but I think crowdfunding is still valid and still a really good source for people who may not have the resources like I didn't, but do have a community and a really good idea. I think those things are important because for a couple of reasons, one, you're always going to have somebody along your journey that tells you that your business is not going to work and that you're an idiot and why would you do it? And Mm -hmm. I think Kickstarter gives you a financial like scorecard to be able to say, you may be right, but all these people think I'm going to be successful. So it does give you some confidence. (laughs) And then also every single person that donates is, is invested in your success. And so they are going to tell their friends, they're going to be there on opening day, like that. They're, they're part of the community. Mm-hmm. Even, even though you already had that community, now you've got people who have financially invested in being a piece of that. So I, I, there's a couple of reasons why even if you have the resources, I think that Kickstarter or a similar crowdfunding thing is still a valid and helpful thing to do for a business, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, and I never thought of it that way as you kind of like kind of crowd sourcing whether or not it's a good idea too, <laughs> you know, that is that is a really smart way to look at it as you know what this is proof that my idea has legs and I liked it I think it was a really eye-opening experience for me the only kind of negative thing that I've heard from some other people is that they have said the fees were kind of high but if you exceed your goal I think you're fine right so yeah ultimately you still get what you needed so I exceeded it I did exactly that's the way to do it shoot a little higher maybe yeah (laughs) So on the business plan side, did you have help with that? Did you spend sleepless nights pouring over the internet? How did you put together your business plan for the boutique? Yeah, I did. So I mentioned that accelerator that I was in, the incubator program I was in with Emory University. Um, So I'd already started on a business plan. I knew um, kind of what I wanted to do. I didn't have like financials. I didn't have a lot of the sort of technical aspects you know, pieces of the business plan that I needed, but I'd already started writing it before I got accepted into that program. But that program really helped me firm it up. And it really gave me the confidence that I needed. The program helped me really dig into the business plan, not only the positives and the things that I saw (laughs) that were awesome about my business, but it, it really, you know, in the business plan, you do have to also talk about risks. And that was probably something that I wasn't even interested in talking about and, you know, in considering. So you are a very uh, positive like, person. There are no risk. So, yeah, no, it's one <laughs> yeah. thing that I was going to mention at there some no point. If, if you go back and look at your Instagram posts over the last few years, I think you're an amazingly positive person. So, yeah, looking up the risk is probably not going to be your strong suit. I do, right? <laughs> But it was so important. And um, I was so thankful to have access to that class because it really did make my business plan a lot more realistic and balanced. And it really forced me to look at, you know, some of the potential challenges and pitfalls of the business. But the business plan was the most important tool that I had to take to investors, to take to potential partners. And to really showcase my business. So I also got some help from a local organization called the Small Business Development Council. I think it's called the SBDC. So the University of Georgia has these centers, Small Business Development Center, the center. And the University of Georgia, go dogs, has a, a program that they 
make available to small businesses through other state universities. So even though UGA is in Athens and I'm in Atlanta, they had a center here at Georgia State. And I went there and met with those folks probably a couple a couple of weeks on end to go through my financials. They had information on the local market, on local trends for beverage, the beverage industry. It really helped to make my business plan a lot more realistic locally. They were fantastic. And I would encourage anyone out there who's looking to open a business to just tap into your local resource. There was also our city, city of Atlanta has a a development arm called Invest Atlanta. And they also had free resources for small business owners. They had grants and other financial tools, but they also uh, had free workshops for you know, writing your executive summary or for writing, you know, certain parts of your business plan. There's also, there was a group here called ACE or Access to Capital for Entrepreneurs, also free. I did some of their online modulars and some of their online learning. I took advantage of so many free resources here in the city and they they are everywhere. They're everywhere. So that that really was so helpful to me because I didn't have access to a business strategist or <laughs> I couldn't pay someone to do that for me. I just didn't have it. But um, doing it myself really, first of all, it taught me about my business. But it also, I think, made me a lot more confident in sharing my business with other people, my plan with other people, because, you know, every time you go into one of those classes or you go in front of an expert, you have to defend your business. You have to talk about it in an intelligent way and you have to use the vocabulary you have to know you know talk to talk and you have to be able to pitch it and it really helped me grow in confidence you know just writing my business plan and going through every little chapter getting it torn apart by some people but also you know those same people giving me resources and help to kind of make it stronger yeah the business plan is the thing that is the thing if you don't have that you don't you don't have a business. You just got an idea. One thing too, the SBDC is actually a nationwide organization. It's federally funded. People awesome. should have a local arm. And I actually served on the board of our local chapter of that here for almost a decade. It's a fantastic resource. The whole idea is it's yes, free education. It you can actually use them beyond the business plan stage. And we had a lot of people who would just once a year do a checkup. Like, hey, take a look at my books. What ideas do you have? What can I do differently? If you're expanding your business, you can then come back and typically that same consultant works there and, and they have a ton of experience or we, they, the organization looks for people that have been in business who understand the concepts and can teach them. So where, wherever you are in the country, you should have access to an SBDC. So look it up. Yeah, I think that's great. That's, that's great. So obviously that helps to have a strong business model in the beginning. Clearly they couldn't have predicted mm-hmm. COVID, <laughs> but we'll get to that part in a second. <laughs> right. So let's, let's take a super quick break. Uh, we're doing this one in the morning, grab a cup of coffee and uh, I'll be back. And I want to talk about how we actually built the place and then kind of what happened from there. So we'll be right back. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, 
you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, so you hired this contractor. He gets started building. He's got experience. Typically, construction tends to be an issue. So did you have any major arguments with these guys during the process or problems that, you know, the light fixtures are upside down or whatever? Like, how did it go? (laughs) Not a one. Not a one. They were so easy to work with. My space didn't require a huge build out. It was really a blank slate, though. It was a square, a box that didn't have much to it. It had, you know, the bathrooms are already built. All the utilities are already there. It used to be like a a, a clothing boutique at one point, I think, and maybe even a barber shop. But, you know, for a retail space, there wasn't a whole lot to do. We just had to build out a bar. We had to build out an office for me. We had to do that just in a way that ensured that there was enough space where the outlets were for the coolers. The cafe kind of seating area um, had its own sort of delineation. Atlanta has rules about having packaged beer and consume beer in the same space. So we just had to be sure that there was, you know, enough space to have like two point of sales, um, you know, two registers, so to speak, to ring up separate. Yeah. But that wasn't difficult to do. The contractors were fantastic. We just, you know, a lot of the fighting that we wanted to do with the city and the inspectors and like getting them on a a decent schedule. There were so many delays, not because of the build out, but because we had to wait on each inspection to happen. The city now, since COVID, is doing concurrent inspections. So they'll have an inspector. I think they're still doing it, but they'll have an inspector who can sign off on more than one thing at a time. Mm. Um, Whereas before we had to sit through maybe four different inspections because they did four very separate things. So there's the health inspection, the environment inspection, you know, the fire inspection, (laughs) the building inspection. And now the city, I think they're still doing, I'm not sure, but they have contracted a lot of the stuff out to companies that can do more than one thing at a time, you know, multitasking companies, like go figure that exists. But that sounds um, like genius. a lot of our delays, <laughs> right? Uh, who would have thunk it? Um, a lot of the delay that we experienced in opening really was just waiting, waiting to get on the city schedule and waiting for somebody to show up or show up when they said they would and that kind of thing. <laughs> well, and so my timeline might be off, but so when I sold my brewery was in September when I finally realized that I had to get out. And that year leading up to it was just a year that I kind of reevaluated my life in a big way and was like, I just, I can't do this going forward. For me, one of those mm-hmm. big moments of my eight months before I decided to sell, I lost my father. And so I think somewhere in this mm-hmm. building process, you also lost the guy that introduced you to beer. How did you put yeah, that together while building? I mean, that's that's a that's a big load. It was. My father passed away January 1st of 2020. And it was right around that time that we were finishing up the construction. Space had been pretty much built out. We were going through like some of the final inspections and then entering into the liquor licensing process. 
So it was a pause um, in the process anyway, but it really shook me up. And it was, if, if that could have been some foreshadowing, right, to how the rest of 2020 was going to go, <laughs> it just kind of went downhill from there for, for me and then for us. But, you know, so I never got to open this space to the public, but my whole entire family, I'm getting emotional, got to see it because we held a party there after my father passed away, after his memorial service. That's where we did. It turned out that the church that we were using could not let us use their fellowship hall for, you know, the repast because they had something coming up immediately after. So I said, well, we'll just go to the boutique. Let's go to the beer boutique. There was scaffolding up but I was like we'll just push it over Uh, I think the contractors at that time were changing out the lights and I had super high ceilings so they had to get a that what you call those things a lift so that was in there but so we just pushed the stuff to the side and I had seating because that was all set up the bar was set up I had beer in there just because some distributors would come by and give me free beer every now and then just you know come by and see the space but I had furniture seating bathroom plenty of parking. So it just worked out. That was such a fitting and, and, and you know, in retrospect, such a fitting way to celebrate my dad. Yeah. There. That, um, that's cool. Considering, a, especially considering he used to be here. You know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, that was, it was just, what a year. Like, and then, and then there's more. I'm sure you'll ask me questions about what else happened in 2020, but <laughs> that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of that year. And um, yeah. Yeah, that was that was that was a nice way to pay tribute to him. Well, that's tough. Like I said, I went through that, and it, two years later, it's still not. It is what it is. So, or a year later for mm-hmm. me, it sucks. You guys did that sneak peek kind of thing, and then incorporated the celebration life for your dad. Soon after that, you found out that the state was not going, or the city was not going to let you do bottle sales at all. Yeah, it was right around that same time. I found out that uh, I was going to have to pick one or the other. Like, did I want to do bottle or did I want to do draft? But I couldn't do both. It was such a unexpected uh, <laughs> discussion I had to have. And it's because in the city of Atlanta, liquor licenses are issued by the Atlanta Police Department. The code is written by city planners. I'm a city planner. I totally understand zoning code. Yeah. I understand what, what, you know, mixed use districts are for. I understand that where my shop was, was in a mixed use district where it's encouraged that, you know, certain services can co-locate so that people don't have to drive back and forth. It's just the spirit of the district where I found my space was to be, you know, what would work perfectly with my idea. The city allows interpretation of the liquor license aspect of the zoning code up to the Atlanta Police Department. To have, to me, to have a department that doesn't create the zoning code be able to interpret the zoning code is backwards and extremely prohibitive. In my discussions with the city planning department, the business that I wanted to create, which is a space where you could purchase alcohol and drink alcohol, was allowed. It was allowed in that district. But when APD, Atlanta Police Department, went out and did their inspection, they were like, nope, you can't, you can't do both. You have to pick one or the other. So what was their So reason? I picked, um, just that it was, it was counter to the zoning code. And I was like, it's not. I can, I see it right. I can explain to you why mixed use districts allows this to happen. <laughs> and they were just like, nope, you to pick one. So did you get an opportunity and to it, argue there was, your case with them or they, did you have to go appeal or what did you do? You know, that's when I should have hired a lawyer, but I was 
so I was also on, I would say, not just a personal kind of time frame or schedule, but a financial schedule because I was burning through working capital mm-hmm. and in my loan, burning through it because of the delays with inspection and just the amount of time it was taking. So I was like, you know what? I don't have like three to six more months to fight with the city on allowing both. So I did speak with an attorney, but I didn't hire an attorney. The attorney told me, you know what? Go ahead with one. We can always, you know, let's let's just get you open. Let's get you open. Mm -hmm. We can always go back, appeal, and see if we can add a second use. So I said, fine. Which one and I chose the cafe, okay, the bar, because I because that of the two, the, that's the thing that I am just most excited about in craft beer is creating those interactive opportunities, a chance for people to you know pour a pint, have a seat, and talk with other people. It also meant that I could still have my classes and I could still do mm-hmm. workshops, and that's very important to me. So I was like, okay, well, you know, and, and you know, financially, the bottle. You know that that was that was going to be significant, but everyone knows that markup is in is in a bar, right? Like right. being able to charge, you know, financially, just what makes sense for my budget was to keep the on-site consumption aspect and to drop the package. Yeah, I I even I even like considered, you know, what if I I happen to be located right next door to a wine shop, who and the, the owner I'd gotten very good you know, gotten to be good friends with her. So she and I were even discussing, well, what if you put, you know, had a, you know, a a shelf in here with your beer for now, we can figure out, you know, the other things. So we were going to, I was going to find a way to figure out the package part, but I said, you know, let's just do the, the pour on the onsite, just because that's where my passion really began and where I thought the most important contribution to the community would be. Clarify for me, because obviously I'm, I'm not steeped in the, Atlanta legal situation, but you had done a video, I think somewhere in March where, and and I should clarify. So a lot of the research that I have done is just simply listening to you share your story on uh, Instagram and Facebook videos. (laughs) So if you're intrigued by Jen's story, please go spend some time listening to them. In her words, explaining the whole thing as it happened is very moving, but also very educational. So anyway, so you, you also had to go to the neighborhood planning unit and the city's license review board in addition to the APB and then originally mm-hmm. started. So anyways, what are all these people that you had to yeah. pay off to get open? <laughs> right. So here in, in the city of Atlanta, you first start with the Atlanta Police Department. They go through your application. They give you an okay to go to the next step. And the next step is to talk to the NPU, which is the Neighborhood Planning Unit. That is sort of a um, city of Atlanta breaks up the city into into zones that are bigger than neighborhoods. So it the neighborhood planning unit included maybe five neighborhoods in this certain area, and the city is broken up like that. So um, that organization is made up of community residents and community leaders. And so, you know, the presidents from all the different neighborhood associations and homeowner associations in the certain district or area, mine fell into a certain NPU. So the first step was to go before the NPU and to get a yay or nay from them. And then you take your applications to the license and review board, which is a city sanctioned board, also made up of community members, but also professionals as well. Planners are on that board, attorneys. It's a, it's a nice sort of cross section of people in the city or representation of people in the city. Um, that's the second step. And then after them, 
the mayor signs off on your application and sends it to the state of Georgia. So you have to go through and then and, and somewhere in between, you're supposed to go to the local neighborhood association just as a courtesy and say, hey, I'm opening up. Atlanta is a very who you know kind of city and a very sort of you just have to say hey to people. You got to be polite. You got to, you know, so another part another, somewhere in there, I was going to have to go to the neighborhood association and just introduce myself, which I'd already done. Actually, I had like a open house, a BYOP party. So bring your own pint glass party. I had a couple beers on tap and invited everybody from the community to come in and just, you know, bring your glass. I, I'd fill it up and we just have a conversation. So I got to meet the, the community. I was in the Glenwood Park neighborhood, got a chance to meet a lot of the folks who lived right around where the shop was going to be. But yeah, so the, I had to go through those steps and also, you know, be a good neighbor and say hey to the right people. Well, so from the outside looking in, here's the here are a couple of the points that I'm just in awe. One you were doing this after you had constructed the building. Is that when the timeline's supposed to be? So you've built, yeah. you've invested, you're done, and any one of these organizations can technically say no. Mm-hmm. How does anything get done yep. in Atlanta? Isn't like, that crazy? <laughs> it, that's the problem. That is one of the major issues. Liquor licensing is so tough because the steps are out of order. Yeah. It's you, so tough because the steps are out of order. Even in Texas, you have to weird, have a but, certificate of o- occupancy. You have to have a CO. Yeah. A certificate of occupancy before you can even go to the first board. So everything has to be done, basically. Before you can start the process of getting your license? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's weird. So Texas, everybody bitches about TABC, yeah. and, and rightly so, but at least there, you're, you apply first. You have to pick the, the actual address, and so sometimes you'll have to sign a lease, but you sure as shit don't need to be done before they tell you it's okay. They won't give you the final thing until you're finished with the construction and COs when you pay everybody else along the way and make sure you grease all the palms. But like, at, at least you've got a, a yes before you invest all your time and money to build a facility. That's terrifying to me. I, it is It is really difficult. And a lot of breweries end up just in this endless loop of going back and forth and getting okays and appealing and appealing and appealing. It that it. it it's really, really a painstaking process. And I, I'll say that one of the, the things that I should have done and I didn't do, and in retrospect, absolutely would do is I, you know, the first thing I should have done was consult with an attorney. I just thought that the zoning was extremely clear. I just, because it, it is, it is extremely, to me. Because you're an expert on the zoning. <laughs> as an interpreter, <laughs> I just thought it was, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. This is going to work. And mm, interesting. So yeah, it's, if you're in Atlanta and if you are not in an industrial zone, you better have an attorney. Like the industrial zones are the only place you can do almost anything you want to do because nobody gives a damn about what's happening there. But also nobody goes there. You know, you don't really go there to buy. I mean, for a brewery, you might, but for a bottle shop, it just doesn't make sense to be in that kind of an area. But every other place in the city, you should have, you know, just put somebody on retainer who can it buys, it buys, it buys, um, because it just, a lot of things just don't make sense here, to be totally honest. Which obviously is always yeah. a good idea to have an attorney, but not everybody can afford it. In Atlanta, don't have a choice. I get it. it. Yeah. So clearly that process would be a challenge for anyone in any situation, any time of year. But uh, you went through that, and a few weeks later, on March 19th, the mayor locked down the entire city, shut every bar and restaurant because the worldwide mm-hmm. pandemic decided to uh, ruin the, the futures and finances of many of us. Obviously, the 
the bad news was you had to make a choice back in February of which one you're going to do, and you chose the one that you had to close. So what did you think? So the one I had to close. <laughs> yeah. What did you think at that point, March 19th? You're like, oh, fuck, what do I do? Ah, I was like, what have I done? <laughs> what have you done, girl? Well, not only did I probably wrong in that moment, you know, the city, like you said, it also just completely shut down. So I was also just wondering how long I could just wait, you know, and how long could I last? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, I was work- using the working capital from my loan. No one knew it was going to be like it is, right? No one knew that three years later we would still be doing this. So the landlord was like, oh, I can give you two months off of your lease. But then the two months that I'm giving you off in the third month, when I, you know, reinstate your payments, you're going to have to break up those payments and pay. So like he was just not being extremely flexible. He deferred it. That's all. At that same time, the SBA froze access to my working capital. So I was in this weird stage and I had another friend who opened a a brewery, opened a brewery at the same time that I was opening my shop and they went through the same thing. So the small business association, if you had a loan, that wasn't technically closed, was still open, there was still money in it and still work for you to do and you still needed it, counter to what you would think. They froze it. I think maybe they just froze it. I don't know what I can't get into their head about why they why they would do that. But they it was still my money, but they weren't giving me access to it. They were like, Nope, we're gonna freeze this and they did that for like nine months. Any uh, transparency as to was there a timeline to that? Was there they just said can't have it? If if you had finished That's on your what they own, said. could you have closed or you know what I mean? Like, did they give you any idea of what you could do? Yeah, I could have. I could have. But even my bank was confused as to why this happened. There just wasn't, according to my bank, a lot of communication between the SBA and banks. They just, the SBA got super scared about what was happening. I guess just didn't want to lose any money or lose any more money. They, I guess, foresaw that a lot of their businesses that they were funding may not make it through this period. And so we're not going to give you all this money if you're just going to close down, And which is what happened. My bank, you know, there was nothing they could do. And I just, I didn't have the money to just be like hanging out and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. The city hall shut down. I don't even know when they started um, having their virtual meetings again. It wasn't until like fall that they started hosting all of these board and review meetings virtually because the city wasn't set up to do that surprise. They just weren't, even city council wasn't having meetings because they didn't have everybody on zoom or they didn't have, it just wasn't, it showed the dirty laundry in city of Atlanta and it being a city that just was not equipped to handle business online. Like we were still very much dependent upon in-person interaction, in-person engagement meetings, like face-to-face, one-on-one, you know, you go before the city and, <laughs> and the chambers kind of a deal. And they just weren't even equipped themselves to handle online deliberations and online board meetings. And it just took a really, really long time. And it just really... Uh, it was just crazy to see everything shut down. Like you say, you know, the, all the bars and then, you know, no, no bars opened up for a minute in Atlanta. I don't know about everywhere else, but it was almost a year, I think, before 
we got, um, we were doing, you know, the city was going through um, sort of these phases of, of COVID readiness or how to open the city back up. We just couldn't get through the phases because of the numbers. And it was just, it was a mess. You try to do an online store, it looks like, the next month. But since you couldn't do Rear to Go, you couldn't really sell much, right? Nope. Couldn't, couldn't do it at all. I, because I didn't have a liquor license. So I couldn't even do that. You had to have a liquor license to do that. And so they wouldn't even move forward with the board review process. Right. Because and that didn't, yeah, that didn't start back up until I think September. And by that time I made the decision to, to close. Well, I had to think that, so the landlord deferred you a couple months, but the first big kind of pain point was the, when that first rent payment with the deferment came due in what, May, June, you couldn't pay it. Mm-hmm. So that had to have been the be- sort of the I beginning. Paid it, I paid it out of my personal savings. Really? And that woke me up. I was like, girl, you can't be giving them all this money <laughs> every month until who knows when. <laughs> you know, like I just. Especially for I was rent. like, what am I going to do? Like, yeah, especially for rent. If it were something else like salaries or. And I thank God that I wasn't open yet because I just don't even know what that would have looked like in that pandemic. You know, I, I there was another beer um, shop that opened maybe a few miles from where I was and they did a huge build out. They transformed like an old auto body shop into a really beautiful bar and they opened February 1st, maybe or 2nd. And they, they did not survive. They mm. had to let everyone go, had to get rid of everything. And I just, I felt even worse for them because they were farther along than I was and had made even more of an investment, the inventory. And I hadn't bought any inventory because you can't buy inventory without a liquor license. So right. Get lucky on that. That was at least, you know, 20,000 that I saved. Right. But yeah, I just, you know, I'm digging in my own savings and that was dwindling fast. And I was just like, I had to make a, 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 a the toughest decision ever of like what I was going to do, you know, how I was going to proceed, how I was going to move forward. So it looked like it was basically August of 2020 when you at least announced and, and decided that you weren't going to open partially because the SBA yeah. wasn't going to release any funds. So what happens to that loan mm-hmm. at that point? Did the SBA just keep your down payment? Did they, like, what? Did they say you owed them more? Like, how does that even work? So the the SBA, I don't think they ever unfroze that, that funding. Eventually, they, they, were, they were willing to. The bank deferred my payment to them. The bank, I don't know what they worked at with the SBA, but my local bank said, okay, we see what's happening here in Atlanta. I guess they had the autonomy to make decisions based on where they were. And our mayor was just, she just wasn't having it with like opening things. The state was open, but the city was like, no, we're not because things aren't safe. So my bank was able to defer for bear. I get the words mixed up. I don't know which one (laughs) is which, but I didn't have to make any payments for for a while. Um, I just actually started making payments. But they said, okay, once things cooled down and we got a handle on kind of, you know, how things were moving with COVID, they said, okay, we can give you, we know you blew through most of your money already because you built out the space. Most of, most of my budget went toward build out and the lease payment, monthly, monthly rent. But they said, okay, we still believe in you. We still believe in your business. It's a great idea. Let's see if you can find another location that could work 
we can maybe bump up, restructure your loan and give you a little more money to do a, you know, some more build out, build out if you need to. We'll know how much we can give you, but let's proceed <laughs> thinking, you know, with the idea that we can and let's see if we can find a space ASAP. And then that became the next challenge, just trying to find another space within, I think I had maybe six months to do that. And it was also difficult because a lot of the spaces that that you would think you'd have access to because, you know, and who hates turning someone's pain into your profit, right? But like other businesses were closing. So you're like, well, I should be able to find a space because, you know, a lot of people can't hold on and can't, aren't, aren't going to make it. But they're actually, the inventory was actually really, really low hmm. here on the kind of space that I needed. And my real, my real estate broker said it, a lot of that was because a lot of businesses, you know, some landlords were a lot more lenient than mine. And so businesses that you thought might have closed weren't closed totally because they were still kind of waiting and their landlord let them kind of sit and kind of figure out what was happening. So the inventory wasn't really high. The inventory in the, the places that I needed the inventory to be wasn't high. And then I found some really good opportunities, but the bank was just not really on board with the, the spaces that I found because they didn't think they would turn a profit quick enough um, mm-hmm. to pay them back. So it just became a chore, really, and extremely difficult to find the right combination of you know location, price point. That was the other thing. Inventory was available, but not in my budget. <laughs> so, more expensive. More expensive. A lot more expensive. The, I don't know what, what was happening, but there was a lot of new construction here. And I, I just couldn't find the right combination well, of location, price city, point. city that I live in, the during COVID, so for 2020, the taxes on our building almost doubled from 2019. And they were expected mm-hmm. to go up an additional 20 to 30 percent for 2021. And you're just at a mm-hmm. point where that raised rents that obviously raised, you know, the value of the buildings and all these things. And so I assume that in a major MSA like Atlanta it had to be something mm-hmm. similar. Just insane. Like at the time when people needed the help the most, like the prices just go through the roof. Exactly. We experienced the same thing here. So you, I guess you never found a building in the timeline. I never did. I, I I found one, got into lease negotiations with the landlord, or found one space that was going to work out. We thought really well. And then there was some weird stuff in my lease, like <laughs> restricting. And in that space, I was going to be able to do package and bar. It was like the perfect space. It had everything that I needed, except the fact that in my lease, they were restricting my bar sales. And it was in like a new development. There was a lot of other stuff happening in that development. And it was just really weird. I was like, why would they be reducing or restricting my my draft sales? That's, you know, that's not going to work for me. I won't make any money. The rent was almost double of what I was going to be paying. But it was in a great location. Lots of uh, residential nearby. It was right in below a new hotel, a new boutique hotel, and there was new condos and townhomes all around it. But they were reducing my tap sales because I found out they were also going to open up a huge tap room <laughs> concept there, a tap house called Poor Tap House. It's like a chain oh, yeah. tap house that has those enigmatic, I mean, you know, you know, poor, right? And I was like, that doesn't really work for me. It's like opening no shade to poor, but 
putting a a Target or a Walmart next to like a clothing boutique. Like those two don't really, you can't, I can't undercut or like I'm not, it just, it just wasn't going to work. And my bank also said, this is not going to work. So we're not going to fund a project here. So that was the last space that I found that might have worked had they not been courting another <laughs> tap room. And so I was like, you know what? I can't. I found one more space after that that the bank was like, no, we don't think that's going to work. And, uh, yep, I had to at that time just kind of throw my hands up and say I'd, I'd done as much as I could. I searched and looked and just couldn't find anything that was going to work out. Let me see if I understand this and, and poke holes. I'm, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. You go to the bank, you apply for a loan, you get a loan, you submit the down payment of 20%, you begin construction, the world shuts down so you can't finish construction. And so the bank finally says, you've got a couple of options to keep this thing going. Neither of those options work. And so they say, okay, we don't, we are not going to allow you to open and create any revenue, but you owe us X. Mm-hmm. You got that right. So they basically backed out of the deal once they <laughs> let you write checks for 150 grand. Yep. Just seems like a weird place to be. I, I, I assume that that has happened before, but honestly, you're the first person I've ever talked to that's happened to them. And that's just kind of terrible in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, could not agree with you more. Could, in hindsight, <laughs> could you have done anything different? Is is there a potential clause you can write into the bank? I, I, this is, not, not a, again, not an ex- something I've heard of before. In hindsight... I don't know what I could have done differently, honestly. I think I did everything that I could have done to save my business or to at least try to open something up. And um, I think at some point it felt to me like so the bankers that I worked for were really nice. The <laughs> people that I worked for at the bank were really nice. I'll say that first. But it just it felt like at some point the bank just did not want to be a partner anymore and just didn't believe that they were going to get their money back or I, I don't know. It just felt like eventually the bank was like, you know what, we're done. We've been dragging this out for long enough and it felt like they just didn't believe in it and were like, you know what, we're good. We're we're good. Just pay us our money back. And <laughs> I don't came. know what I could have done differently. Sound like the only person that, that came out ahead was the landlord because they got a free space finished out. But other than that, no one no one wins. Yeah. There's a beautiful plant shop in there too right now. Really, really nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On that note, we've made it through the hard part, and I appreciate you sharing that story. That obviously were some struggles in there and some ups and downs. Yeah. But it's important to me, especially with your story, that we end on a high note. So I really want to take a quick break and come back and talk about some of the things you have going on now. It sounds like you have some really cool events and some. I think you've rebranded. And anyways, I'll let you tell that story. But let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back and finish it out. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. 
Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right. So since you admitted temporary defeat back in the late 2020, uh, <laughs> you've obviously been very busy and, and maybe even busier, it seems like. But in- Instagram now says that you're a craft beer educator, creator, experience host, and consultant. Uh, There's a lot of words. What the fuck does that mean, Jen? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot I updated my bio to say that. <laughs> You know what? It really means like returning to the stuff that got me here in the first place. You know, I got into craft beer or into creating a job for me, a career for me in craft beer through classes and through educating and through talking to people about beer. And so I really just wanted to return to that. I don't know if I'm going to revisit opening a craft beer store. The pandemic taught me a lot about like resiliency and you know, is a brick and mortar a resilient model anymore? And it also made me reconsider, you know, what is the most important thing to me in this space, in this industry? And it is, it always has been like the community and the connections that are created around craft beer. So given that we can't, or for two years, a year and a half, almost three years, we couldn't meet in the same way and do the same things that we were doing. I still wanted to be a part of it. I still wanted to be a part of beer and to find a way to still feed my soul and my spirit and my, you know, fulfill myself while also giving to the community. And the best way I know to do that is through classes, through educating, through interacting with people. Maybe it's not a brick and mortar anymore. Maybe it is sharing the stories, sharing my stories, sharing stories of other people who are, who are, maybe not in craft beer, but who are business owners and entrepreneurs and who want to help, you know, give nuggets of information and, and, and to, to help support other people with information. But it's, you know, it's a, it's about me returning to kind of things that make me happy. Beer just happens to be the thing at the center of it. And it's always been just like connecting with folks and, and sharing. And so I was, Struggling really, you know, and once I figured out that I wasn't going to be able to open the brick and mortar, it, I, you know, I just, it was really, it was really a struggle to let that part go. And even though I think it's temporary, it still has been a challenge to kind of just close the book, close that chapter in the book and to find a way to still be valuable to the community and, 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 and find something that still fulfills me. So that's what I'm doing now. I started back with some Instagram live shows, so to speak, for lack of a better word. But 
um, like I said, having conversations with people and getting back to exploring craft beer. Yeah, which is great. And that, one of the things that you did that was, in my opinion, a much bigger production was the Crafted for Action is something that you had co-founded. It was originally an online event. And I think that was maybe six months after the bank said no, basically. So it, it there was a lot of things that you did in there, but what, what was it ultimately about? What was the point? Was it, And I guess another question, was that in the works before? It, so no, it was on my vision board though. Really? I have like a list of things that I want to do and I've always wanted to do a conference. I was going to do it in 2020 and just never got around to it. 2020 happened. And my original thought for having uh, Crafted for Action, Craft Beer Con or the conference was for it to be an in-person kind of event. And so I shelved it again. And when 2021 came around and I found out that the stop opening was probably not going to happen or not happening. I was like, you know what? You've been doing some things on Instagram. You see people still making a way through virtual engagement. You know, even in my own job as a city planner, a lot of the outreach that we were doing was all virtual. So there is, you know, a model for this kind of stuff happening and you know how to produce it. You like talking. So how about bringing together some conversations during American Craft Beer Week about craft beer? And it started out as me wanting to do an event every day, a virtual event every day for Craft Beer Week. And then it kept growing and growing and growing. And I kept connecting with more people. Um, the beer community, as you know, so solid, really good people who I have found just really want to, to help and to connect. Um, there's a lot of room, I think, for competition in craft beer, but there's also a lot of room for collaboration and for community. And I found through kind of just trying to plan my craft beer week events, a lot of people wanted to, to be of service and to help and to be of support to me. And it just grew into craft beer con. I didn't, it was not my goal really to create a virtual conference for that week. It was really supposed to be one talk every day with some, with a panel and maybe a few things in person. It just grew into that. And I'm so happy because I don't think I would have set out to plan a virtual conference. It just, I, because to me, it just seemed impossible or really, really difficult. Not impossible, but really, really hard. <laughs> and also because I was only like maybe, maybe two months out from Craft Beer Week. And I just didn't, I didn't think I had the time to really pull something together. Crafted for Action was, you know, born out of, not just the pandemic and us not being able to connect, but also a lot of things happening, you know, socially in America. I think a lot of it focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just focusing on what we could do in craft beer to create more spaces for more people. Um, it was the same right around the time or after uh, the whole Black is Beautiful beer movement happened in 2020. And there were a lot of people, I think there's a lot of positive energy around opening the floodgates and letting as many people come into craft beer as they wanted. And I was like, you know, this, this will be a really good way to kind of continue that energy and, and honor the work that a lot of brewer, a lot of brewers participated in that. And that was just so nice to see. And so I thought the the conference, the virtual conference would be a good way to kind of build off that energy and that momentum. And um, it just, it grew into something much bigger than I thought it would. Yeah, it was cool. You had a bunch of people involved and you tackled a bunch of issues. One of the ones that I thought was 
super interesting out of the first one was cultural appropriation in beer. Did you guys answer that question? <laughs> that was a that was a big one. It was like, is it appropriation or appreciation? And I think the jury is still out on that. That was a, a really interesting panel that we hosted that with. Um, the moderator was the VP of Urban Music at Interscope Records, and the panelists were Atlantucky Brewing. Folks know them as Nappy Roots, and they have a brewery here in Atlanta. And then Crowns and Hops Brewing out in Inglewood, California, who are working on opening their space right now. They were the panelists. And, you know, it was a really lively debate because musicians see things a little differently than I think for sort of craft beer people may see them. Mm -hmm. And I think from Atlantucky's perspective, it was about appreciation and that if people, and I think that maybe because they're musicians, right, that they see a lot of different people appreciating their music and appreciating hip hop. They see a lot of that cross-pollination or a lot of the similarities in craft beer. It was just a really cool conversation. Those those topics, those conversations from the first conference are available on YouTube if anyone wants to hear it. But honestly, I, I don't know if by the end of that, there was much resolution. I think it's one of those things, one of those topics that will continue to kind of evolve. And I, I think a lot of it happens to do with sort of, you know, where you fall within hip hop and how much you appreciate craft beer and if those two things can coexist. And I think I think one thing that we did sort of settle on at the end is that they can and that the two industries really can learn a lot from each other. I think just in hip hop in general, that's that's been a discussion for a very long time, you mm-hmm. know about uh, appreciation versus appropriation and you know how that kind of spills over into beer I think is going to be really interesting I think it will continue to continue to evolve too I, I like to see I like to see the mashup between the two because I think there's a whole lot in common between yeah. sort of hip-hop culture and craft beer culture well, I just think it's great you're having a conversation so it's one of those things that so many people are just afraid yeah. to even address it and it's it's art. Yeah. So there's not a right or wrong. It's going to be hard to come up with a singular black and white mm-hmm. answer to the problem, but n- not discussing it doesn't I think help. So too. You know, so. Exactly. Exactly. So obviously it went well enough. You're planning it again for 2022. You have it coming up again, I believe. I am. So do you want to give those dates? Uh, it is. People? It's happening. Yes. American Craft Brew Week again. It's going to be May 11th through the 13th, maybe the 14th. I think I'm going to add something on that final Saturday. It's going to kick off on Wednesday, the 11th, which will be just sort of a meet and greet, welcome to the city kind of party. I'm hoping the goal, if all these variants won't (laughs) just chill the hell out, to do it in person mostly this year, but to keep a, a, a virtual component for people who can't travel or don't want to travel. Just can't get off work or, you know, would rather join from their desktop. But yeah, it kicks up on the 11th with sort of a welcome bottle share. My birthday is May 10th, so it's kind of a birthday party as well. And then we'll have sessions running on Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday, I am looking to do sort of a not-so-conference-related event. I'm still, the jury's still out on that, I'll I'm not going to talk about it just yet, but on, on that Thursday and Friday, we'll have discussions, some workshops, and I want to do a specific track for people who are studying for the Cicerone, any Cicerone or Beer Judge Certification Program test. So we'll be doing more of a, a study hall, I'm calling it, for people who want to, you know, learn about draft lines and how to 
you know, clean systems and how to taste and discovering off flavors. I just want to create a space for people who want to further their education and have some folks to study with. So I'm still putting together the pieces. I just released a call for sessions. So if anyone out there is interested in being a panelist or putting together and organizing a workshop or a discussion, I'd love to have your ideas. We just put out, just revamped the website for it and that craftitforaction.com so people can go there and submit their session ideas and we'll be posting information as we as we go there for, for the conference um, in general. Um, every month we'll be having discussions and talks and maybe some in-person stuff too, just to create energy around it and to get people back yeah. into the mind of Craft It for Action. I will definitely promote that as it gets closer too. I think it's a great event and I appreciate that you're doing it. So keep it up. Another thing that I think is cool is that when I go back and look on your feed, um, this is a little bit off the subject, but I I think it's great that you just have a distinct love for diversity in a way that uh, maybe it's just me, but I don't see near as often. Most people, when they say we want diversity in beer, they literally just mean we need more of X as opposed to straight diversity. And everything that you're doing, this seems inclusive to everyone and celebrating every constituent that comes to the table. And I just think it's fantastic. I'm just curious, like, why you think you have that approach versus some of the other people's approach that I've seen? Thank you. Thank you for noticing that. I don't I don't know if if it's even intentional or not. I think it's just kind of who I am. I mean, I'm a black woman. (laughs) And so I just I bring myself to what I do. I think about the barriers, physical or non-physical, that ha- that I've sort of come across in craft beer, and I am probably one of the least likely in the in the in the space. You know, women are not always accepted and are not always treated the same, and then people of color aren't. I think I'm just because I happen to be both. Maybe I look at things through a different lens. But I, first of all, I, I do. I thank you for noticing that because it it has always been sort of the mission of Atlanta Beer Boutique to create opportunities for everyone. I think everybody should be able to enjoy craft beer. It is the most popular adult beverage on the planet, the third most popular beverage in the world. Everyone should be welcome to it. It shouldn't be gatekeepers. There shouldn't be, you know, barriers. There shouldn't be roadblocks to anybody who wants to enjoy a beer and learn more about it and just enjoy it in the comfort and the company of other people. And I just think it's so simple, right? Beer is so, we have made it complex, but it's such a common beverage. It's so unifying, like it's everywhere. And I just think it's an opportunity, like, and, and, and if we miss it, I think we're just not doing anyone any good if we don't use it as a chance to connect. And um, I don't know, I think that's maybe how I look at it is just, it's such a great conversation starter. It's so easy. Yeah. And I think it should be for all. So, yeah. Well, even, even in that sense of promoting women and Black-owned breweries, when, when you do that, you have such a, in my opinion, an elevated example of how to do so. And, and I'm going to explain. There are guys that have been out there, especially since, obviously, 2020 was a racially charged year for a variety of reasons, that have just, so there's guys that have just made lists. Here's all the Black-owned breweries go there, or here's all the women-owned breweries go there. And while you promote women and Black-owned breweries, I think the biggest thing that's missing there is that you do is to say, hey, this chick I know who's badass, she's releasing this beer and you've got to taste it because it's awesome. So as opposed to just saying, she's a chick, go drink what she made, 
which I don't think helps her business. I don't think it builds her up as a creator and an artist. You're promoting the product that happens to be women-owned. And, and that's just something that most people are forgetting to do. And I think it creates a long-term community, but it also builds the, the artist up and I think ultimately helps her business more than just mm. than just saying, hey, black guy pays the rent, go over there. And I think that's awesome. So Thank you. Yeah. You know what? That may be because I was opening a bottle shop too, right? Like my focus is always going to be on on product, right? Is it good or not? And that's, I get in trouble sometimes for that because <laughs> I may not always promote a woman for a black owned beer because it may not be good. And so I'm, I'm not going to do, you know, I don't do things just because there's always some intent and meaning, I think, behind, you know, the thing that I advocate for. Yeah. No, you can tell the, the honesty behind it. So, um, <laughs> obviously you also started a podcast last year. So what, you know, again, I did. Little, little Miss Can't Slow Down decided to also then start a, a media company. <laughs> so what's that yeah, all about? I think, I think there's something wrong with me. I need to sit down sometimes. So Beer Biz and BS is what I started. And I have to bring it back this year. That came out of the pandemic, though. Uh, the first season that I, that I recorded was me talking to six other business owners who you know, had to change courses, had to pivot, had to find something new to do in the midst of 2020. Those conversations were, were helpful for me. It was actually a little selfish because I was like, I need some support. I need to hear some good stories. I need to hear about people who are making a way out of no way. And so the first season was really focused on that. Second season was focused on ladies and it was a chance to just talk to women. I hosted it in March of this year during Women's History Month. And we just talked about being a woman in this, in whatever industry you're in and what that's like and giving um, advice and support to other people. And this year when I bring it back, I'm not sure what the spin is going to be, but it may be about like new beginnings because that's where I find myself now. It's just, you know, still trying to figure it out and navigate where I'm going, but still keeping, you know, the positivity and, and knowing that whatever the new beginning might be for me, that I can trust that, that if I do my part, and if I work hard and and be authentic in my approach to those things, that I will find my way. And I know a lot of people sort of in the aftermath of of last year and the year before, um, because last year was, it was difficult for a lot of people, too. 2021 was also just a challenge. But I think we're now getting to a point where we're, and I hate this word, but I can't think of another one, but we're coming to like this new normal to where we understand that things will probably never be the same. But that doesn't mean that things can't be just as good or even better. And so what are the things that we need to do to sort of create that clarity in our minds so that we can, you know, push through and figure out what's the next chapter and what's the new beginning? Well, that's that's where awesome. I am uh, with Beer Biz and BS. And I've enjoyed it. And it, it has been, I, I don't know, I, it's just been so eye-opening. And it I didn't really think that I'd ever do anything like this. So it's just so interesting. My hat's off to people like you who really do this and who are consistent with it because it is a grind and it is a commitment to do these interviews and to talk with people and to edit. And I don't edit anything. I just do it on Instagram and what comes out comes out. And <laughs> it's not as polished as a lot of other ones that I've, that I've heard. Just the commitment that you have to make to podcasting or to, you know, being in media is, something that I just I don't know if I had the full respect for now but definitely do but it's been it's been so fun just 
talking with folks and hearing stories. I love storytelling and I, I don't think I, I don't think I knew that I would like it as much as I do, but yeah. I'm sure you have, you, you can relate, but it's, it, it, it is really fun and inspiring to hear other people's stories. Yeah. When I started the podcast much for the same reason that in 2019, I wrote the book and because I was staring the edge of disaster and my, my brewery was essentially dead at that point. And after releasing mm-hmm. the second edition of the book, I'm like, you know what? That story was interesting, but everybody else has got stories of struggles. And, and so it'll help me <laughs> to hear those stories, but then also mm-hmm. to share them with the next generation. So I'm glad that the podcast has helped yep. with your catharsis a little bit with being able to yeah. get past the, the, the failure of the store or whatever, the, the current failure of the store. We talked about a lot of things. What would you say is the single biggest challenge that you've overcome in business in general? I think just probably the biggest challenge has been getting out of my own way and convincing myself that I have every right to open a beer business and to be here as anyone else. I think initially I lack the confidence. I don't know. I, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of preparing before I do anything. And there was never a point where I felt properly prepared to open a beer shop. There was never a point. I just had to do it. I just had to talk myself into stepping off the ledge and going out and doing it. Because I, I don't think I ever, for my level of comfort, would have ever gotten to the point where I was like, okay, everything's in line. Everything's perfect. Now you should apply for this loan. I, I would have never gotten there. And I think part of that is my, my analytical brain, right? Like I do, I do future planning. I do forecasting. I do mm. all of this stuff in city planning. And so I have to... When I make recommendations to a city on their transportation network and how to improve it or what changes they should make in the future, that's grounded in data and in, you know, in a lot of facts, you know, but it's still a guess. It's still just my best guess. And so I had to remind myself that that's what you're doing here. So I had to get out of my own way. I had to sort of build the confidence to say, Jen, you have prepared enough and you can figure out how to fly on the way down for the most part. You have enough to at least step off the ledge. And that was probably, that would be the one thing. Which is a good lesson to learn yeah. in whatever you do. Yeah. One of my favorite mm-hmm. questions that I have to ask everybody is, how has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? Put more bluntly, if mm. how has drinking or sampling and drinking wine and beer all day as a career uh, kind of affected that relationship as an aging alcoholic. <laughs> so that's a really good question. I go through periods where I don't, where I don't drink, which always kind of throws people off. Um, like I'm in one right now. I don't, I never, I very rarely drink in January. I think people call it dry January or dry January. I don't know what they call it, but I normally fast this month just to kind of reset just everything. But what I have traditionally done is like socially, I don't drink during the week. Mm-hmm. I normally just drink on weekends because there were there is a point where I I mean I just doing too much just not only for work but for so like all of my friends happen to also be beer people now and so drinking is very very regular pre pandemic though right because the pandemic changed a lot about how we how we gathered and drink but I don't I don't drink as much beer as people would think. I'm always a little embarrassed by that because I hardly ever know like the new releases and what's out next. And I have friends who know everything. Like (laughs) 
they track this stuff. They know, you know, someone's doing a release. It's tap room only. They're only making this many barrels. And you got to go here. I hardly ever know that stuff. So I used to be so embarrassed. I had, I was like, for my shop, I'm going to have to create like a panel or like an advisory board to tell oh, me what to right. buy because, yeah. And it just changes so much. Like I just can't keep up. I don't have a beer fridge. I don't have like a, I don't have a cellar. I drink whatever the beer that I have in my fridge. I drink it up before I buy more beer. I don't stockpile beer. I don't collect. I don't do any of that, which is always a surprise to people too. I'm actually out of beer right now, <laughs> but I, yeah, I have had to. And then since the pandemic, because I was home and working from home, I was starting to drink beer. I was day drinking beer, like starting at, you know, 12 o'clock. I was having lunch beer. And by the end of the day, I may have gone through a six pack. And I'm like, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing this. And so it has been a roller coaster. Just my relationship with, with alcohol and with beer over the past couple of years. I still, I am a beer drinker though. If I drink anything, it's beer. And if not, I, you know, I'll, I'll have some vodka or something, but it has, I've had to curb it. I've had to, you know, during the week, you know, maybe something, maybe a beer or two at home, but I traditionally do not. I don't drink anything until Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that was always my, lifestyle basically previous to coming into the industry and what the problem I ran into is that there are just there is a legitimate reason as a brewery owner to drink on a Tuesday a Wednesday a Thursday and then you have the normal weekend social time where mm-hmm. you know mowing the yard or whatever and so it got to a point where it was just I can tell you I sold a brewery in September and I've had less beer since then than I had um, ever and any I mean it's it's almost yeah. ridiculous. It's almost like I'm swearing it off, um, but that's that's how I found my balance. I used to yeah. always drink, not drink Monday through Friday as well. But. Yeah, yeah, and I feel, and like I said, I used to feel guilty about it. Like <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but I did. And then, like, of course, with you being in a in a brewery, and I guess I could have too had I opened the shop. You just have access to it at like nine a.m. So it's like I may, you know, I may have had a beer at like ten or you know. A, I don't know if it matters what time you drink beer. I know there's like a people frown upon you drinking before noon, but there are plenty of times when I've had like breakfast beers and brunch beers. And yeah. the bigger part of that problem is, is if you start early, you'll just drink all day. <laughs> so it's the, the first beer leads to the you night. know you are. Yeah, but yeah, the hard part hung over by by six p.m. Yeah, is weird. <laughs> the hard part is once you got open, is you'll have sales reps who will come by at nine in the morning that want you to try the new flavor yeah. from XYZ Brewery. And that's when you almost have to start drinking in the morning and not drinking, drinking, but you do that six times. And now you kind of want a Pilsner to wash your palate off or whatever it is. And so it, it definitely makes it, it off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right. For last sure. question, uh, which may not be a simple answer, but you have written a book, started a blog, got very close to opening a beer store, sort of an online convention, a podcast, what what is next? Um, clearly, you're not done. So, wh- what do you envision as the next great Gen Price achievement going forward? I created Crafted for Action initially as a conference, right? But I am going to. I just incorporated Crafted for Action. It's an LLC now, and it is an events company. Craft Beer Con is the big event that comes out of that. But I want to do more events. And I want to do more events that sort of match up beer with things that don't necessarily go with beer or just kind of create opportunities to for two different groups of people to experience things that they may not in the past. So 
for instance, I'm planning a beer and sort of camping excursion or event with a local guy here in Atlanta who does, who's an outdoorsman like that. He's like a legit outdoorsman, like Mm -hmm. camps and sleeps outside all the time, which is so wild to me because I am not, that is not me. But I love it. I think it's so interesting, and I would love to learn more about it. And I know there's more people who do. But my goal is to take Craft It for Action and create more events around it and to begin. Uh, my, my big dream really is to do beer travel, to plan tours, you know, not only to like Asheville or Colorado, but to Germany and to Belgium and, you know, to different countries and explore beer, you know, with a travel group and explore local culture and explore local food and just do more globally with, with craft beer and with other people. Well, that Those sounds are the amazing. things that I love. I love, doesn't that sound great? Beer yeah. and travel and like friends or new friends, creating new friends over beer. Like I said earlier, I think that's one of the, the, the beauties about craft beer is that it's, it's everywhere. You can go everywhere and, and connect over it. And even if, you know, you may not even have to speak the language, but like beer is its own language. And I, I just can't wait to try to figure out how, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but <laughs> hopefully next year to do like, to do a real trip <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's the goal. Sounds based on your resume that's that you figure it out, whether you know how to do it or not. So uh, best of luck in yeah. that. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you tremendously for spending time with us today. I think that you had a lot to offer just if from no other perspective than some very important cautionary tales on how to what happened with the bottle shop being open but i think ultimately that you've come out stronger and with a a unique and interesting brand and and, and it did not seem to have reduced your fire at all which is a fantastic lesson that i hope that everybody learns whether they go through the struggles of, of doing it or not so anyways i appreciate yeah. you sharing with us today anything you want to leave yeah. the viewers with tonight this afternoon um, no, just make sure you follow me um, on Instagram. It's so I'm growing my Craft It for Action brand. So I want to ask everyone to just follow Craft It for Action on Instagram. You can go to the website, craftitforaction.com to subscribe, to get updates on the conference and the events leading up to the conference. I just want to thank you for this opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Um, I, I agree with you. I think the way that we learn best is from other people and watching other folks do the things that that we may want to do or have done and um it kind of just gives you more encouragement and energy to keep moving so thank you again absolutely i'm glad you're on the show no way I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media.